if you have your copy of the scriptures open to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, the text that we'll be covering today is John chapter 5, verses 16 through 30. I'll just mention 30 towards the end uh, because it, it helps to bring some clarity to an otherwise kind of obscure section of the text or an otherwise kind of confusing section of the text. So it's always helpful to grab a broader context when you can. Whenever you're approaching a, a scripture and you're thinking, I don't, I don't under, understand what he means by this, rather than taking it in isolation, consider what's after, consider what's before, and that'll help bring clarity to something that's otherwise kind of seemingly convoluted or confusing. So here's my objective today so that we can stay in the same lane together. My objective is to show the unique relationship dynamic between God the Father and God the Son and to show the relevance that his deity has for us today. And here's why I think this objective matters. I think that's what the text is doing. But I think it's easy for us to say, yeah, I know that Jesus is God. I have no problems with that. I, I agree with that. I'm a Christian, and I know that's what Christianity hinges on is the deity of Christ. So we're good. So I can go home. So, no, no, I think, I think that's precisely the problem is that it's just we understand, we know. So I want to look at, I want to investigate the relevancy that it has for our life now. You know, so maybe looking more into the mechanics of those things. So here's the objective one more time, to show the unique relationship dynamic between God the Father and God the Son. Because this is what is happening here. So again, John's gospel is what? It's an apologetic for the deity of Christ. An apologetic means to give a defense. And this is what John is doing. He's giving a defense over and over and over again with every chapter and verse. He's giving a a defense for who the person of Christ is and for the deity of Christ. What's interesting here is, though, up until this point, you've seen the works of Jesus that have displayed his deity. You've seen others' words regarding Jesus that have affirmed his deity. And now you're going to have Jesus himself giving an apologetic, giving a defense for his own deity. So I'll just say this. If you're in conversations with people with any regularity about the gospel, about spiritual things, about Christ, you're going to come into this issue where people are going to challenge the deity of Christ. I would challenge you when you are having conversations with people, you need to get to the heart of the issue, who is Jesus? Because I can talk to a Mormon and I can say to them, I'm saved by grace through faith so that no one may boast. It is it is, it is all that God has done in me that I might become his workmanship in Christ Jesus. I can go ahead and talk about all those things, and they would amen and affirm me every step of the way. I can say, hey, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that he's atoned for sins. I believe that if you confess, repent, and if you place your faith and put on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. And they will say, amen, hallelujah, pass the mustard, all that fun stuff. No, they would agree with all of this. But we have a different Jesus So it warrants us investigating who the person of Christ is. And if you don't get to his deity, then there's no point in you having a conversation with people about Jesus. Because that's the crux of the issue. Christianity hinges on Christ's Godhood. Okay? So that's why this objective matters. So as a kind of a precursor to this text, let 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 me highlight an aspect of his relationship. Okay? So this dynamic... You'll notice in the text where we're going through it that the son is subjecting himself to the will of the father. This is a big deal. And it's a good thing, but so many people pack or they see this and it's a bad thing. Because how can he be fully God yet subject himself to God? If they're equal, how could he subject himself? How could he make himself lesser? So there's a lot of questions that come up from this. There's a lot of scrutiny that people cast onto the Bible because they, they misappropriate or don't really understand how to look through these things. And I'm going to help us navigate through that today. So here's, a, here's a, a phrase, that two phrases that you need to be familiar with. One is great, one is not. Subordination and, subordination and subordinationism. All right, I know that's, like, how are they different? They are. <laughs> they are. So subordination is not a problem. It's not a problem. And we understand it this way. You go to work. Right? Or I go to work and we have a boss, right? 
Yes, I know in some weird way Austin is my boss, but yet we're co-equals here. I get it. It's fun, right? So, you know, so I have to really behave myself at work to not put him in a weird situation where he has to hit me with a hammer. So it's a real interesting dynamic, which is why probably we don't work a whole lot together because Chris knows that I would befuddle things a little bit. So, so I have a boss. I have a bigger boss who can hire and fire me because Austin can't do that. Contrary to popular belief, he can't hire and he can't fire me, okay? Regardless of what he says to you, don't believe him. So Austin can't do that. Chris can do that. Jonah can do that. Or your boss can fire you. Now, as far as who you are as a human being, you are not better than or less than your superior. But as far as your roles are concerned, you are separated. So when Jesus gave up his position in glory, Ephesians, or Philippians 2, and he came and he dwelt among us, he put, on, he put on flesh, he left his position taking on a lesser position. But ontologically speaking, he is still equal with God. Ontologically meaning of the same substance, the same being. This is what Hebrews 1 argues. So there is no ontological difference in that sense as far as their worth, as far as their nature, as far as their being, because Jesus is fully God, God the Son, God is fully God, God the Father, but Jesus took on human flesh, and in that he subordinated himself by taking a lesser position and doing things according to the Father's will, because if Jesus does something that is contrary to the will of God, we've got a major issue. Major problem. So there's this subordinate relationship that takes place. Now that's different from subordinationism. All right, and this is, it's not going to be all seminary classes today, so, but let me, let me just make sure you understand. Subordinationism now, let me read this for you. This asserts that Jesus is of different nature than the Father. Big problem. Major, major heresy. Dates back to, to uh, Tertullian, dates back to, to like 330 A.D., somewhere around in there, give or take so many years it teaches that the son is neither eternal nor is he divine this means that jesus is different from the father in being and in his attributes this is a major no-no all right so don't subscribe to subordinationism if you say jesus subjected himself jesus subordinated himself to the will of the father absolutely that's what the scripture teaches and so that's what you're going to see as a relationship dynamic. And I want to give that to you as a backdrop because what's going to happen when we get into these verses, you're going to see Jesus subjecting himself to the will of God. You're going to see Jesus saying things like, I say to you, the son can do nothing on his own accord. But with that as the backdrop, you can understand what that means. It's not so much about ability, but about a oneness with God. A oneness with God in action, a oneness with God in will. All right, Are we okay to start now? Clear enough, okay? So that's subordinationism versus subordination. So here we get into the deity of Christ. Here's the context. Jesus just healed this man who was an invalid for 38 years. He was at this pool called Bethesda. For those of you that are just joining us this week, last week we saw Jesus heal this man, this invalid. Jesus spoke to him on the Sabbath. The man picked up his mat and he walked. This was a big no-no, right? For those Jews watching, they said, you can't do that. This is the Sabbath. Look at Jeremiah, look at Deuteronomy, look at Leviticus, look at all these laws, and you'll see that you can't carry anything, you can't labor to that degree. Now the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, they abused the law. So they were misappropriating it anyway. But still, they're admonishing this man for picking up his mat, completely missing the fact that he had just been miraculously healed because he was an invalid, not able to get himself to the pool. So then they turn their vitriol towards Jesus and they say, how dare you heal this man on the Sabbath? Again, completely missing the point that this man had actually been healed. And so this is what has just happened. And then they get very, very, very angry with him because of Jesus' response. And this is where we pick up in the text. Verse 16 says in chapter 5, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, so I am working. And you don't think that's really that offensive of a phrase to say, my father's working, so I'm working. But then verse 18 says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. 
making himself equal with God. I'm not giving the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, a pass. But if you're looking at it from their perspective, they don't believe Jesus is the Christ. They don't believe Jesus to be the Messiah. They believe what they're doing is honoring God. They believe that when someone comes up and equates himself with God, that they don't believe to be the Messiah, that they don't believe to be God in flesh, God incarnate, they are upset. And from that perspective, I get it, even though they're wrong because a natural mind is set on natural things. and They couldn't see even with what was right there in front of them. And we would be the same way, right, if someone comes in our midst and says, hey, <laughs> I'm, I'm this and I'm that, you know, I'm, and everything they're saying is, is, is just, it, we just, we just, it's, it's, it's blasphemous in our eyes. We would be upset about that. We would be frustrated about that. You know, hopefully you wouldn't pick up stones and start stoning people and go Old Covenant on them, but it would still be an issue. It would not set well with us, and it didn't set well with them. Now, they had the wrong perspective on things as far as not being able to see Jesus, but I get their frustration. I get their anger, again, not to justify those things. But here's what's crazy to me. So they're mad at Jesus because he has equated himself with God. That's what they accuse him of. And for a change, these leaders were right. They're right. They're, they're, you, you are, in fact, saying that. You know, it, it's not that we approach this text and there's any other way to interpret that. Jesus is equating himself with God. The fact that he is saying, my father's working, so I am working. My father, my father created for six days. He rested from creating. He did not rest from sustaining. He did not rest from carrying the world from one moment to the next. Otherwise, it would fall apart. He did not rest from those things. He rested from creation, but he did not rest from sustaining. He did not rest from sovereign rule. He did not rest from these things. And Jesus, to say, hey, I will work because he's working. He's inserting his deity, saying, I am God. And so what I see in this, and Jesus, and what's interesting is Jesus doesn't deny it. I mean, have you ever been accused of something, and, 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 and it's, it's just dead wrong? Are you not one to just fight tooth and nail to, for vindication? I mean, if someone comes to you, I mean, it's a major offense. Maybe someone comes to you today and says, hey, you're a blasphemer. You said this and this and this, and they lie, just straight lie about you. Are you not going to defend yourself? Is it not going to well up in you that you want to defend yourself? Maybe you'll be disciplined. Maybe you'll be calm and maybe you'll just walk away and say, hey, the Lord will vindicate me. But surely everything in you, whether you say something or not, everything in you will want to scream out, this is not true. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. And so Christ didn't respond that way to them. And I think you need to see that. That's a, that's a huge part of this. They're accusing him of something and he doesn't deny it. I mean, I think Jesus, of all people, would know if he was right or wrong. Jesus, of all people, if he's being accused of blasphemy, he would know whether it was blasphemous or not. So why didn't Jesus correct them? Why didn't Jesus say something? Well, the only answer is he didn't because he is, in fact, God, and they were, in fact, true in their accusation. And you can't miss that. So I told you that this text, not only is John giving us an apologetic of the deity of Christ, but Jesus is going to give us an apologetic for his own deity. He's going to give us a defense for his own deity. And I think that it's represented in five statements, five self-identifying declarations that Jesus makes to affirm his own deity. And this, this is a strong argument, or these should provide strong arguments, because even though the Bible is sufficient in and of itself, when we look at the words of John, or we look at the, the works of Jesus, but now you're getting to the very words of Jesus. Now you're getting to a context where they've accused him of equating himself with God, and he doesn't fight against that, yet he says things to further affirm their suspicions. He says these things, so this should come as strong fodder for you and for me when we're engaging people, or just to bolster your own faith, your own strength, you know, to, to provide more of that in your Christian walk as you look and say, I truly believe in the deity of Christ and the implications therein, which we'll see toward the end. So, so here we go. So the first of five declarations to Christ's deity where he's making some self-identification, and I'll show you where these things are drawn out from the text. The first is this, is his declaration of being the Lord of the Sabbath. So there's the declaration of his Sabbath lordship, if you, want to say, if you want it said another way. So look at verses 16 through 18. Here's where I get this. 
This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered him, my father was working until now, so I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Christ worked because God never ceased working. I told you on the seventh day God rested, but not from creating. I mean, uh, from, cre- um, from creating, but not from his sovereign lordship, not from upholding things, not from sustaining things. He was always sustaining things, always. You see, God is an active ruler and not a passive ruler. Okay, so active rule is sovereignty. Passive rule is deism, which means that God has wound up the world or wound up the cosmos, wound up humanity like a clock, and just set it on a shelf for it to go its own course. He doesn't interfere. He doesn't intervene. Whatever happens, happens. And this is a heresy because the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't substantiate or support that kind of teaching, that kind of theology. It's called deism, and it's false, and it's a passive ruling. And God doesn't rule that way. And aren't you glad? What if he wasn't intrinsically involved? What if he wasn't intricately intricately involved in his creation? What if he didn't have his thumb on the heartbeat of everything that happens? What if he wasn't there to do that? It would be chaos, and it would spin out of control. It would absolutely spin out of control, but it's not doing that because God is sustaining things. So there's passive rule of God, and then there's the active rule of God. And this is called sovereignty. God is intimately involved with his creation. Just to give you two scripture, two verses to help affirm this claim. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Not were held, but hold together. There's a continuous action showing that God is holding things together. And the implication there, based on the context, is that if he doesn't, it, it, it falls apart. So there's an active ruling. There's a sovereignty that's taking place. Jude 1, because there's only one chapter. Jude 1 says this, To those who are called beloved, sorry, those who are called beloved in God, God the Father, and kept for Jesus. And kept for Jesus. Something interesting about this text is that word kept, that verb, is the tense that is used for that verb, in the perfect tense. It shows a continual work. It shows a continual watchful care. So God is absolutely involved. He is keeping us Even the scripture says that we have been saved, we are being saved. There's a continuous action where God is sanctifying us. He is moving us away from what doesn't look like Jesus and moving us toward what looks like Jesus, right? So this is a big deal. This is a big deal, getting this right, passive rule versus active rule, deism versus true sovereignty. And God is sovereign. He's always working. And this is Jesus' claim. He's like, God is sovereign, God is working, I too will work. And I know it's kind of a weird language. Why didn't Jesus just come out and say it instead of speaking in what maybe seems to us as some kind of convoluted term? But they got it. It was clear. Their understanding of the Sabbath, their understanding of God and his rule and the fact that Jesus has the authority to do what he wants on the Sabbath would imply that he has to be Lord of the Sabbath. If he can do these things in the eyes of God and it just be okay, then he must be Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus was either right or he was wrong. He was either Lord of the Sabbath or he's not. He was either wrong, he was either wrong or he was the Lord of the Sabbath. As the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus has authority to do anything that he wants. And this is declaration number 1. I'm going to move through these fairly quickly. But number 1, just remember that he is Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of the Sabbath. This is a point that he raises. Declaration number two is the declaration of his oneness with the Father. He has a oneness with the Father. So in terms of his deity, listen to this. Verse 19 says, So Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. The Son does likewise. This text, I said before, is often used to argue against the deity of Christ. 
If you find yourself engaged in conversation and someone wants to go to this and say, see, see, the son, the son had to have the help. The son couldn't do it by himself. The son was, was, was not equal to because if he was equal to, he wouldn't have to do it the way that he did it. He could just do what he wanted to. He could have done it on his own accord, but he doesn't do, his own, do it on his own accord. So what does that mean? How do we reconcile Jesus doing things not on his own accord, but according to the will of the Father? How do we reconcile that with the fact that he is fully God? Some may say if Jesus really is God, why can't he do anything on his own accord? This verse does not reveal a limitation regarding Christ's person or power. It does not, it does not promote a limitation, which is what some want to point to. Because let me ask you this. When the scripture says that God cannot lie, that's in the negative. But in any way does it diminish the character, the power of God? No. It doesn't bring scrutiny onto God. It doesn't do any of those things. But it's the negative. It's in the language of limitation. God can't do something. He can't lie because of his nature, because of his perfections. But it doesn't diminish his character. The scripture even says that God cannot be tempted with evil. That's a negative. As far as the language is concerned, it's a limitation. He can't do something. He can't be tempted with evil. But does it diminish the character of God? Does it diminish the nature of God? No. It bolsters the fact that God is perfect and that God is pure. These negatives, these limitations, they lift up God to show us that he is above all these things, that he is perfect. It doesn't point out a blemish in his person or his nature, neither does it for Jesus. Just because it says that he did nothing on his own accord doesn't mean that he had this negative or this blemish on his character or didn't minimize his deity. However, this text does articulate Christ's oneness with the Father. And follow me on this. So it's not a limitation. It's not a blemish on his character. So what is it? What is the author trying to say? What is John trying to tell us in Jesus' words? What Jesus is saying here is that he does not act independently of the Father. He's arguing his oneness with God. He's arguing that they are absolutely equal. That he is the exact imprint of his nature in all things. In word and in deed, in purity and perfections, he is God. This is what Jesus says. I do not act independently of the Father. Why? Because the two are one. That's exactly how we understand this text. But if you go back to verse 19 and you look towards the end of it, Jesus not only says, I do nothing of my own accord, or I do nothing independently of God, or I do nothing apart from the will of God. He says, for whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Likewise. The heart of this word likewise is that he replicates the exact action of his Father in every sense. And again, that is connected with Hebrews 1 in that Jesus is the exact representation of the nature of God. Jesus is the exact. And it doesn't mean he's a copy of. That's not the idea. All right, this is important to understand. He's not a copy of. It's not like you have a Rembrandt painting and then you have a copy of it that you can't look and see the difference. This is not the issue. He's not a copy of. He is the exact representation of his nature same nature same being except he has a human nature in addition to his divine nature ultimately jesus statement wasn't an issue of ability but an issue of the will wasn't an issue of his ability it's an issue of the will and this is where i said we'll jump to verse 30 just to help you see this verse 30 says i can do nothing on my own so the same sentiment the same verbiage I can do nothing on my own, independent of God. He doesn't act without God. This is, again, arguing for their oneness, arguing for their cohesiveness, arguing for their equality. He says, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It's not an issue of ability. It's an issue of the will of God. 
You see, God and God the Father, God the Son, always act in unison. They carry out the same will. And Jesus is saying, look, I don't have a will that's separate from God's. And God the Father doesn't have a will that's separate from mine. He says, we act in accord, we act together. And that in and of itself is a statement of his own deity. So you see how they accuse him of one thing that was just kind of a, a passing comment. Hey, I'm, I, I'm working because my father's working. And then he starts to dig it up. He starts to say, listen, we're going to get muddy with this. And you're going to see, he's going to say all of these offensive things. And really stir the pot. So there's the declaration of his oneness with the Father. If that wasn't enough, he makes a third statement. And in this, this statement, we see the declaration of his power. And I think you would agree, to be able to raise the dead to life, that's pretty substantial. That's kind of the epitome of power. Right? Physically speaking, that's the epitome of power. You know, Because death is pretty definitive. When you go to a funeral, or I go to a funeral, or let's just say you're at a funeral, or you see people at a funeral... Do you, do you normally, is it normative practice for people to hang around at the funeral just to kind of see if the person might pop back to life? No. People say their goodbyes. People offer their condolences to one another. Maybe they pray for one another. They encourage one another. They, they weep with one another, and then they leave. They're there for each other. They're not there for the one that's gone. I, I get we honor the life and we do those things, but we're there to comfort each other and to offer words of encouragement and hopefully point people to Jesus and the great hope that's in, that's in him. We don't wait around to hope that the person pops back up to life because death is definitive and we understand that as the curse. And Jesus is telling them that he has the power to raise to life. And he says it in two ways. I can raise life physically. I can give life physically. And he says I can give life eternally. I can give life spiritually. So it gets deeper. It's not just, hey, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, it's not, it's not just I'm the Lord of the Sabbath or that I have oneness with the Father, but now he's saying I can, I can bring life. And this would have been a mighty offense to the Jews because these leaders would have understood the teachings from Deuteronomy 32, 39, where God says, where God says himself, he says, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me, I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. And I researched this text to make sure I was understanding it. And the understanding of this text by scholarship is that God is saying, I'm the only one that can give life. I give life and I take it uh, at the end of the day. At the end of the day, I'm the one that's responsible for these things. And now Jesus, knowing their understanding of what Moses wrote, knowing their understanding, is now saying, I can give life. But not just physically. I can give, I can grant eternal life. I mean, this is such, such an offense to them. Listen to verses 20, 21, and 24 through 26. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him. So that you may marvel, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. He gives life to whom he will. And look at verses 24 and 26. 24 through 26. Truly I say to you, whatever, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself... So he has granted the son also to have life in himself. So multiple times in a few short verses, he has articulated, he has self-identified through making a declaration of his own deity by being able to bring people to life, not just physical life, but raising people up out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And this is Jesus' claim. And he can bring both physical life and eternal life. And this is a major, major corner here in this text. But it doesn't stop there. So that's three of the five statements that Jesus makes, just in the few short verses. And then there's a declaration of his justice. So he's talked about being Lord of the Sabbath. He's talked about his oneness. 
his oneness, his complete equality with God, and then he talks about, you know, he talks about his power, which there's more to say about his power, I get that, but I'm just, I'm perusing over this so you can catch these major highlights and meditate on these things and hopefully unpack them uh, with, with questions that you look at, lo- look over yourself or maybe talk about with your spouse or friends or whatever. I would encourage you to do that. But fourth, there's a declaration of his justice. The fourth self-identification is Jesus arguing for his deity through the declaration of his own justice. Verses 22 to 23, then 26 and 27 says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So just like Jesus' self-identification with deity regarding the declaration of his power, he's doing the same thing through a few verses and repeating himself in terms of his authority to judge. Why are we... Why are we, we are told in the scripture why Jesus was given authority to execute judgment. I mean, right there at the end it says, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because, because he is the son of man. Now, I'm going to assume that maybe you don't understand what son of man is. We understand son of God. But Jesus, his designation for himself, more than any other title distinction, is son of man. So it's worth exploring for just a second. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Is it representative of his humanity? Sure. Just the same as his designation as Son of God is representative of his deity. But this is rooted in Bible. It's rooted in Daniel chapter 7. Listen to what Daniel writes. Listen to these words from this prophet about the one to come who is the Son of Man. Daniel says these words in Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14. He says, I saw... In the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion. The son of man was given these things. Dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Who is Daniel referring to? Jesus. Jesus. So what Jesus does before these Pharisees, if if all he said was, I'm the son of man, that is a declaration of his his deity. That is self-identification of his godhood. This name designation, the son of man, affirms Jesus' own deity. And don't forget this. Jesus was given authority to judge. Judgment is reserved for those sitting in the loftiest of places. Judgment is reserved for those sitting in the loftiest of places. Judgment of an eternal magnitude. Not an earthly judge, which that's a big deal. Judgment of an eternal magnitude demands the purest of judges. There can be no flaw in the system like there's a flaw in ours. It can't work that way. If you have an imperfect judge on the heavenly eternal throne, then you have imperfect rulings. And if that happens, you scrap the biblical notion of God. Only the divine can judge on such an eternal level. So what is the... What is the great judgment? What is the final judgment? Where all this happens? I'm not going to get into it in detail because I really can't explain it because I'm learning these things myself as a student of eschatological things. But listen to this. When all the evidence is laid on the table to substantiate whether or not you belong to God, that is the final judgment. When the totality of your life is under review and all all that matters is what you did with Jesus, when that happens, guess who will be the one judging Jesus. The one standing before you that says, what did you do with Jesus is Jesus. What you did as a humanitarian will not matter. It won't matter. What your, your altruism, your charity, your benevolence, it won't matter. Because those things aren't the standard. The standard starts with Jesus. That's the concern. It's profound, but it's absolutely simple. People expend their lives, they exhaust their lives trying to be good people when the Bible says there's no one good. 
rather than relying on the goodness of Jesus and his righteousness that is imputed to us when our account was empty. With eternity on the line, only one judge is adequate to make that call. And that's Jesus. So for Jesus to say that all judgment had been given to him is necessarily a self-identification of his own divine sonship. And there's a final declaration that he makes with regard to his own deity. And that is the declaration of his worth. And it's, it's, it's brief, but here it is. The declaration of his worth, verses 22 and 23. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. It's okay for people to honor people, right? And we do that. We do that. We venerate people. We lift them up. We honor them. And that's okay. That's, that's good. Paul tells us to do that. Paul speaks of Epaphroditus. He says, this is a man worthy of honor. Honor this man. We honor people. We honor athletes and musicians and motorcyclists and aviation and space folks by putting them in Hall of Fame. We honor these people, mothers, on Mother's Day. We honor fathers on Father's Day. We honor our servicemen and women, and this is absolutely fine. We just had Teachers Appreciation Week, which was May the 4th through the 8th. And then we had National Nurses Week, May the 6th through the 12th. They get a couple more days than you teachers. I don't know what's up with that, but that's what's going on. Pastor's Appreciation Day, October 13th, we get one day, so suck it up, okay? You get four days, you get six days, we get one, okay? Paul even said, well, I told you Epaphroditus was worthy of honor. 1 Timothy 5.17, on a serious note about elders, the elders who rule well should be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. So, so it's, it's a biblical notion to honor people. And it's a biblical notion to honor Jesus, but the two can't be compatible, or they can't be comparable. Not compatible, they, should, they can't be comparable, because they're compatible. The exaltation that we offer a human can have no comparison to the exaltation that we offer Jesus, because they're not on the same scale. These things are good, but when it's comparable to what God deserves, what we offer others, it becomes idolatry. Jesus is claiming this, listen to this, in this text that I just read, Jesus is claiming that he deserves, he deserves the same honor that God the Father receives. And they wanted to kill him for it. The fact that they wanted to kill him was representative of the fact that they understood exactly what he was saying. You can go to someone when you're arguing the deity of Christ and lean on the understanding of the Pharisees for the first time in your life and say, they got it. What they're accusing him of, what they're upset about, was absolutely correct. He was saying the things that they believed he was saying. He absolutely was making an argument for his own deity. So Jesus claims to deserve the same honor that his father gets. This makes Jesus one of two things, either an idolater or makes him God in the flesh. He can only demand the same honor if he is, in fact, the same. Do you understand that? Jesus demands the same recognition that God the Father. He can only do that if he is the same. That's it. That's it. If I'm in a class with Stephen and Stephen makes 100 and I make a 50, Stephen should get different recognition than I get. I can't say I demand the same recognition. It doesn't work that way because it's not the same. But Jesus, God the Son and God the Father are absolutely the same, which is why Jesus demands the same honor. Not only does he claim to deserve the same honor, but also that failure to honor him is failure to honor God the Father. Imagine the frustration of the Jewish leaders here. They felt that their accusations against Jesus would have been honoring the Father. Their admonishment to the invalid regarding his law-breaking would have been honoring God in their own eyes. But Jesus is telling them, no, <laughs> no. In fact, in the Gospels, he makes it clear, look, your father is the devil. Your father is Satan. Jesus is telling them completely otherwise. The Jewish leaders were exactly right in their accusations against Christ as far as the claims he was trying to make. He was, in fact, equating himself with be God. Such claims would either make Jesus a lying blasphemer or the Lord of all things. 
That's the logic of this. If it's the latter, then there are weighty implications for you and I to think through. And here's the relevance of Christ's deity. Here's a few comments for you to kind of take with you and say, okay, I see this, Jesus is making this, why is this relevant, how is this pertinent for me, and let me just walk through a few things. Here's the relevance of Christ's deity. Everything hinges on the fullness of deity, dwelling in Jesus. Everything hinges on that. The efficacious nature, the potency, the power of his atonement was contingent on his perfections. His perfection was only possible because of his deity. Because the only perfect being, the only sinless being, has to be a perfect being. The only way to do that is to be God. That's the only one who's ever achieved it is Jesus, outside of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Consider this, and I want you to follow me on this. I'm not trying to get really philosophical, but as I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about the atonement and the wrath of God, this is, I want to present this to you and just help help add more framing to your structure as you think of this. Here we are. Consider Christ's ability to appease the wrath of God. I'll start with that statement. Consider his ability. The fact that he was enough to appease God's wrath. Okay? Let me just start with that. The lost will suffer the wrath of God in eternal separation. Correct? Eternal separation. And what happens throughout that eternity God dispensing his wrath because he's holy because he's just because we've earned these things right and God dispenses his wrath eternally what does that mean that means that there is no end in sight that means that a thousand years a billion years a trillion years is not enough to completely appease the wrath of God for those whose sins are unatoned for. Does that, does that land a little bit? It's not that, oh, you'll suffer for a while, a few trillion years, and it'll all be over. Just hang in there. No, no, no. It's eternal dispensing of God's wrath. And it will never be fully satisfied on those who are not in Christ. It, that's why hell is eternal. It's not, hey, I'm going to pour this out like a bucket, and once the bucket's gone, you're going to be there, and it's going to be pretty terrible for eternity, but at least this portion's over. No. Hell is the wrath of God. And we get images in our mind of fire and flames and all this stuff because the Bible provides these images. But Jesus endured the wrath of God, and there wasn't a flame in sight. So there's more to it than just flames. Flames are probably nothing compared to what is attached to it. Because Jesus endured the wrath of God. But here's what's interesting about Jesus and as far as an affirmation of his deity. What any human would spend eternity suffering and yet never fully appeasing God's wrath, never to where it's finally satisfied and therefore done with, Jesus did in mere hours. Hours. You follow me? In hours he did this. If that doesn't scream the deity of Jesus, then nothing does. Nothing. Because only God can fully satisfy God. If Jesus is not God, then we lose Christianity. If he is not God, then the God of the Bible doesn't exist because the God of the Bible is a triune God. If God does not exist, it leaves us with a problem. There's no objective standard for morality. This may be good news for some, maybe not in this circle, but there may be good news for some who live their life a certain way and say, you know what, I don't have to account for anything. This is fine. This is good. Let me just tell you, if there's no objective standard for morality, you can't argue that abortion's wrong. You can't argue that pedophilia's wrong. You can't argue that murder's wrong. You can't argue that incest is wrong. I can do whatever I want to any one of you, and nobody can say anything about it in the grand scheme of things because there's no objective standard for morality. That's the logic of the illogical nature of atheism. That's what happens when you remove God from the equation is all logic breaks down because there's no objective standard for morality. 
And if that's anybody's position in here or anybody's position that you know, they don't have a case against pedophilia. They don't have a case against rape and incest or anything. They don't because nothing matters. It doesn't. We have rules and regulations, but from an atheist standpoint, it's arbitrary. It's arbitrary because, you know what, we're just going to do this thing. There's really no objective standard for it. We have nothing to look to, so we're going to create our own. And everywhere it's different because relativism rules the day when you get to that point. Whatever's good for you, do it. Whatever's good for you, do it. But there's no objective standard for what's right or for what's wrong. And that's what happens when you strip God from the equation. But when Christ is in the equation, you have value. You have worth. You have purpose. You have meaning. I have an atheist friend who I've talked to several times about spiritual things, and it's a hard conversation because he's brilliant. And sometimes I just don't know what to do with what he says. Way, way, way smarter than me, or that I'll ever be. And as an atheist, he would have to be consistent and say, life has no true value. If you're just a cluster of cells, what do cells matter? They don't. They don't. It has no value. But it's inconsistent with his way of life because he lost a daughter years ago. And he mourns, still, he mourns the loss of that daughter. And rightly so. He mourns her loss. Why? Because she has value to him. Because life has value. But that's inconsistent with a godless world. Because a godless world is a world with no value. But with a world where Christ and God the Father and God the Son exist as the triune God, there is value, meaning, and purpose. And finally this, and I'll leave you with this encouragement. Because Christ exists, because He is God, the apologetic of the Christian always wins. The defense of the Christian always wins. Whether you walk away from an argument defeated or not, at least in your own mind, if Jesus is truly God, then all of the promises regarding that, all of the promises surrounding that are absolutely true, and we can, we can, we can build on that. We can trust in that, that he will rescue, that he will bring from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. The scripture says that no one can resist his will. There's all these things that we look to as promises in the Bible, as truths of the Bible, and we lean on those. So the fact that Jesus is fully God gives us unceasing hope and joy in our apologetic confidence in our apologetic, our defense that we give for the hope that's in us. This is a little bit of how Christ's deity is relevant for us today. Just a little bit. And if we had more time, we could talk about more of these things. But I want to leave you with that thought, is that you would be encouraged. Be encouraged that because of this reality... Your apologetic wins. That the gospel is in fact the power of God unto salvation for all who believed. Or all who will believe. That we do plant and we do water, 1 Corinthians 3, and God brings the increase. That's his job. That's his responsibility. Just as God was powerful enough and pure enough to satisfy God in his wrath, God is powerful enough to raise people up from death and bring them to life. So all of these things are promises you can claim and that you can live by and appropriate in your life. Let me close with this and we'll pray. With all of this talk about Jesus and his deity and his atonement and the power therein, I just want to say that be sure that you're intentional with the gospel in your life. Not just being a nice person. There is something to be said about how you conduct yourself as a Christian because that provides a backdrop for the message of the gospel because people start to connect a life that is lived in subjection, beautiful subjection to the glory of Jesus and to the will of God and they marry that with the message and it provides a beautiful backdrop. It's like a black canvas that's placed behind a diamond so that the diamond just shines more brilliantly than it would if it was just held up in front of a window with, with light coming through. This is what a, a life lived for the glory of God, walking in a manner worthy of your calling, does when it's the backdrop of the gospel as people start to connect these two things. And so be diligent to give people 
the gospel. They need to know that we are broken, we are fallen, every one of us. Every one of us. And it's not that God had a vendetta against you and that he's okay with you and God's doing this or that. It's like everybody, everybody's broken, everybody's fallen, no matter who you are, no matter what you do, no matter what you know or don't know or your occupation or your personality. We're all broken. But God in his mercy, love, infinite grace and wisdom, he says, I'm going to make a way to bring you into right fellowship with me again and rescue you from your fallen state, and that is through Jesus. And the scripture is just clear. It's simple but profound. It says just repent of your sins. Trust Jesus. Trust Christ, the true biblical Christ, who is God and man. Trust Jesus, the only one that can absolutely and fully appease God because it takes God to fully satisfy God. Trust Christ. If it's you, it's you. If it's your friends, talk to them about that. And give them the gospel because this is what we are here to do as sojourners. Let's pray together and we'll be dismissed. Father, I thank you for your word again. I thank you for Lord, being patient with us and gracious to us as we try to navigate through all of these things. I know some of the stuff was, was, was thick and some of it was dense. Lord, but I believe it's all there and I believe that it, it, it has emerged from the text and you've intended for us to see the things that we looked at today. Lord, if there's more, I'm sure there's more there that I didn't see. Lord, I pray that as people reflect on this, as they meditate on this, Lord, that you would bring other significant truths that are encapsulated in this text, bring that to surface, bring that for them to see. Father, if there's something in the way that I've presented this that I've missed or that I had a blind spot or I misspoke, Lord, I pray that you would protect our hearts, protect our minds, Lord, and help us to work through these things so that we might see clearly what your truth is presenting to us. Lord, would you be so gracious and so patient with us. Lord, would you continue to mold us into the image of your Son, and may we be a pleasing aroma to you as we leave this place and as we work and as we get into the world and into the difficulty that are the trenches of this world. But may we, may we please you in the midst of all of that. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed. We couldn't choose.